My name is Daryl Moon, and it's my pleasure to be with you today. The best healthcare system model in the world is the aspirational healthcare model South Central Foundation has created, and they call it the NUCA system of care. It's up in Alaska, and it's the best example of this aspirational healthcare model. They are the only healthcare system that has won the President's Malcolm Baldrige Award twice, once in 2011 and again in 2017. Countries come from all over the world to Alaska to learn how the NUCA system of care can do healthcare so much better than all other systems and do it for half the cost with far better outcomes. Well, I'm honored today to have as my guest panelist, one of our nation's leading healthcare transformation pioneers, Dr. Tony Dale, founder and chairman of Sidera. I've asked Dr. Dale to join me today to discuss this aspirational healthcare model and why it represents the future of healthcare in the United States as well as across the world. Welcome, Tony, and thank you for being with me today. Darrell, I so much appreciate this uh, invitation to be with you and very much looking forward to our conversation. So take a minute and introduce yourself. Uh, okay, well, uh, your audience may pick up a little bit of a British accent. I'm a British family doctor. Uh, I trained in London back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, that kind of betrays my age. Uh, at uh, a world-famous uh, Barts Hospital, or full formal name, the Royal and Ancient Hospital of St. Bartholomew. Uh, and, you know, coming from a tradition, uh, both family-wise and, uh, I guess, professionally, uh, I'm the uh, third generation of family doctors. I'm very committed to the role of family practice in medical care uh, and extremely interested in what the people have pioneered in Alaska because the NUCA system of care uh, really is an is inspiration to so many of us. Nice. Thank you for the introduction. Tell us to begin with, just how are you and your family doing during this last year of the pandemic? Well, I appreciate you asking. And of course, uh, it's been a strange year for everybody. Yeah. Uh, we think my wife had uh, COVID uh, back uh, very near the beginning of the pandemic. It was before we all realized that losing your sense of taste and smell was almost diagnostic on its own. Yeah. And in her case, that was all that happened to her. Uh, Interesting. We didn't about it at the time because it was so early on in the uh, epidemic. Uh, I also subsequently caught it, uh, but only very recently, about six or eight weeks ago now. Uh, and again, I can be profoundly grateful uh, that I had a very minor case. Uh, but we've watched uh, with, hmm, don't even know what the language is, with obviously medically great interest because we're both physicians, but also with uh, sort of... A, I guess an academic sort of intrigue that something can present so complex, so different, and can be minor in one person and life-threatening in the next. And there yes. doesn't seem to be an absolute clarity as to what's going on there or why. Yeah. Yes, it is interesting. I've had a couple of my children, young adults, both get it. One had absolutely no symptoms, and the other one, it was fairly mild. I'm glad that I haven't gotten it. My wife hasn't gotten it, but it's been interesting to see others who have wound up in the ICU at the hospital and some that have passed away from it. It's, a, it's an incredible 
virus, that's for sure. So Tony, I would love for you to share your personal story of coming to the US and personally experiencing a need to change our healthcare system and then pioneering a whole new way of paying for healthcare. Would you kind of take five minutes and just share with us your story of transforming a big part of the healthcare system? Uh, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. And, you know, obviously I'll gloss over most if there's anything you want to dig deeper into, you're welcome to. Uh, but we've been here in America for almost nine years. I've come here not to, to practice clinical medicine. Um, America has plenty of physicians, uh, but I've been very involved uh, in a movement really to uh, encourage treatment of the whole person uh, and was particularly interested in the area of uh, the sort of interrelationship between our spiritual dynamic, if you like, and uh, our physical and emotional well-being. Uh, and so I've been working with physicians across Britain and Europe and other parts of the world and uh, pioneered uh, some thinking and uh, we thought we would start something over here, but that did not work out. Uh, and it was, you know, that would be its own story, a very interesting part of my personal journey. But uh, into that, near the end of my uh, first nine years here, uh, I injured my knee playing basketball with the kids. I was fairly sure what had happened and in two or three weeks I could begin to see some muscle wasting around my knee and my suspicion that I had torn my medial uh, meniscus on my left knee uh, was then confirmed by MRI. Uh, so of course I, I went to uh, an orthopedic surgeon uh, and uh, you know showed him the MRIs and stuff and uh, his comment was yes absolutely you know this is torn uh, but it's, this is a relatively simple repair uh, and so I asked because uh, I was a cash pay patient uh, what it was going to cost. And he said, oh, it'll cost about $2,000. Now, he didn't lie to me, uh, but he didn't realize that I did not understand the whole picture, especially being a physician myself. Uh, so his part was going to be $2,000. Uh, but $15,000 of medical bills later in 1996 terms, so about $35,000 in today's terms, maybe more, I'm delighted that the surgery has gone so well and appalled that a simple procedure that had me in the hospital at 6.30 in the morning and discharged home uh, by 10.30 that same morning uh, could set a person back that type of money unexpectedly. And that began the journey. And the first thing that came out of that was I started a company called the Caris Group to uh, specifically help the healthcare sharing ministries that had emerged around the country uh, to know how to handle their medical bills. Uh, and we began working not only with them, but with insurance companies on some of the limited medical benefit products that they had in those days so that uh, people who were caught with a type of healthcare, but maybe it wouldn't cover everything. We could help them negotiate the remainder of their bills. And uh, we became experts in this area of sort of navigation through the complexities of the system uh, and, and trying to get people fair prices and handled hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of bills. Then the Affordable Care Act came in and uh, it, it actually changed everything. Uh, people may not have realized how big a change it was, uh, but whatever the long-term aspirations of which we're probably seeing that begin to unfold now under the present administration, uh, at the time it was obvious to me that even though it had provided a safety net or what's known as a safe harbor 
for these uh, faith-based ministries, uh, actually what they had done was shunt these ministries into a corner, uh, try and limit uh, their possibility of growth and prohibit any other entities from forming. And having worked with both these faith-based sort of cooperative movements and with the insurance companies, I have watched both intimately uh, at that stage for 15 years, and I'd actually come to the conclusion that the, that the faith-based cooperatives were doing a better job uh, than what the insurance companies were doing. And so it was a poll that seeing government limit their effectiveness rather than enhance their effectiveness. Right. And that began for me a research journey, it took about three years to figure out how could these patterns be taken, this pattern of what most people know as healthcare sharing, uh, what we tend to define as medical cost sharing, I think it's a little bit more specific. Uh, and how could we take these sharing patterns and really learning from the sharing economy, find a way to help people bring this approach into the mainstream where it's not just for a, a few people with a certain faith foundation, uh, but available to all in such a way that everybody could have the benefits uh, of the power of the sharing economy. You know, Uber has transformed the concept of what it means to catch a taxi. Yeah. Uh, how many of us could have even conceived that we would get in a car with a stranger uh, and allow him to take us somewhere and overnight come to realize that they weren't a stranger. We had their picture, we had their license plate number, we actually felt safer in their car than we did in the taxi at a fraction of the cost and at far greater convenience. Yeah. Uh, and the sharing economy in that area showed people how to share an asset in the sense of, you know, I've got a car, I've got time to drive, uh, and I'm gonna uh, share that with someone who has a need, uh, i.e. transport from A to B. And what we've done is just kind of flip that on its head, and we've seen people have liabilities from time to time, infrequently. They experience large medical bills. And what we've done in the medical cost-sharing world that uh, Sagira has been sort of pioneering into the mainstream is we've taken that liability and built communities around it who are willing to share their asset. Most of the time I'm healthy, I have extra money, I'd be happy to share that with uh, someone who's in need, knowing that when it's my turn, there'll be money to share my need. And that, if you like, in a simplest sense, is what we've done. And, and, and it costs significantly less than traditional insurance. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we typically tell people that they're going to say probably in the 30 to 50% region. Uh, but actually, if you look at, which is a lot, uh, I was reading a, an academic paper just recently about how we can make incremental change and there's a, an entity set up called I think the 1% Institute or something. You know, what different things could we do that would make a 1% difference? I laud what they're doing. That, that's a great start. But if we can do something that changes 20 or 30 or 50%, then let's open ourselves up to that uh, and there is so much going on not just what we're doing, but all sorts of things going on that cumulatively really could bring everybody's healthcare costs down by that much. And, and I just want to point out that it's not just for individuals to join, but a lot of your clients are businesses who have offered it to their employees to join. Uh, Daryl, that's absolutely correct. In fact, when we started in uh, 2014, part of my research 
Uh, in those days, the individual mandate was still an issue. Uh, there was a penalty which was, you know, scheduled to grow and really become uh, very penalizing. Uh, and, and so, uh, as we looked at what it meant to find a way to comply with the law while taking this new methodology out, uh, actually the only way to start uh, was within the, the group framework. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yes, we, we began uh, working with groups and as we've learned more about how to do that and how to help people uh, because of changes in the law, uh, and specifically the, the Trump tax cuts that removed the penalty, uh, you know, since that time we've been able to work with individuals as well. Thanks. So transforming healthcare in the United States is not an easy process. You've experienced that, whether it's the way we pay for healthcare or the way we deliver it. Let's now discuss this model of aspirational healthcare and why it would be so much better for all of us versus the deficit-based healthcare system that we currently experience, if we could actually transform healthcare into a more aspirational model. Give us your sense of what, the, what we mean when we say aspirational healthcare. And I'm certainly willing to share kind of my thoughts, but I'd love to hear kind of what your thoughts are. Okay, well, you know, you, you asked two professionals like the two of us, and we're all gonna have our own aspirations, True. Uh, our aspirational ideas. I come from a family practice background, uh, and most of my clinical experience was in Britain under the National Health Service. And so as I looked back on my own experience, and uh, in a sense, uh, I, I'm thinking, but I have a feeling that the American word for this is different from the British word, but uh, you know, a horse wears blinders, something to keep its eyes on track. Uh, maybe you have a different term for, for that. Uh, and you know, working in the track I was working in, I thought the National Health Service was pretty amazing. Uh, I knew there were lots of problems. I experienced them every day, but it was still amazing that, you know, people could get health care uh, without worry about cost. Uh, of course, what they didn't know was that's why they paid such high taxes. Uh, but people can't even put those simple ideas together much of the time. And so, uh, they weren't looking for change. Neither was I. I was a part of the system. Uh, and it really took coming here and looking at some of the wonders of the American system that began to raise my economic possibilities of what could be done. Because I knew, even in a difficult context, I strove to give the best medical care. But I began to see a context within the free market where one could actually give the best care. Then you come across, for example, something like, you know, what the, the team uh, there at South Central Foundation in Alaska have done with their NUCA system of care. Uh, and you see the genius of something that has become owned by the very people who are a part uh, of the system, who are uh, getting the care they need. Uh, it, it's kind of the truest look at what a cooperative might look like that I've come across. Now, that may not be the right legal language, uh, but it's essentially, uh, they call their patients uh, uh, owner... Uh, customer owners. Customer owners, that's the word yeah. I'm looking for. And, and I love that concept, love it. And so you then begin to see what happens because as you think aspirationally about change, there are really two primary sides of this, 
which people usually call the doctor-patient relationship, but really it's the, uh, the, 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 the healthcare provider and the healthcare recipient. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the provider is much more uh, than just the doctor, uh, and the recipient uh, is certainly much more than just the population of people out there. It's also the individual who's sitting in front of you or I who's looking for help. It may be coaching help. It may be health on their diet. Uh, it, it may be dealing with family things that are going wrong, the sort of area that I was so interested in and in, in helping people deal with their whole person. It may be the ordinary physical illness like COVID. Mm -hmm. All of these are critical and aspirational care says, if I can teach people what health is about, then I can also be much better equipping them to deal with illness when it actually comes. Absolutely. Very well said. From, from my perspective, that's what they did in Alaska, is they build a system around the person. They, they simply went out to the community, did thorough research, identified what the customer the actual people in their membership wanted from a healthcare system, and they then applied a healthcare system to balance the needs of the customer. Where a deficit-based healthcare is far more based on come to the institution of medicine where we have all the wisdom and be the benefactors of our great wisdom when you fall off the cliff. And, and yet, if we look at health, and it's not just about health care, it's about health, and what do employers who buy health care benefits for their employees want? They want people to be healthy. They want attract and retain employees. They don't want it to cost a fortune. So what they want is health. And yet our healthcare system is all about when you fall off a cliff, let us get, make money fixing you and making you better. <laughs> Where what they did in Alaska is they said, look, if 75% if of your health is what you do to yourself and how you manage your health and the lifestyles and decisions you make. And only 25% is the science of medicine. When you get in trouble, how do we fix you? Then shouldn't the healthcare system have an equally balanced approach to you in that 75% of the system should be focused on supporting you and being an owner of your own health and 25% be focused of when you need the science and you need the medicine, we're there to help you. But wouldn't it make sense if we're really being customer focused that we balance the efforts of the system on the needs of the customer? And by simply doing that, they've discovered that healthcare be so much better, so much superior in creating health, and yet cost half as much as our deficit-based healthcare system that we're so familiar with here in America and across the world, quite honestly. Which is why countries come from all over the world to go, how did you do this? <laughs> it's not just America that looks at it, it's like, Got people from, from countries all over saying, how did you do this? And they simply well, balance the needs of the providers or the focus of the providers on the needs of the customers. And what they've done is so impressive because they haven't taken what many people might view as an easy uh, population. Oh, they've taken yeah. the first population. Hardest. Absolutely. With, with all of the challenges, the social issues, the poverty issues, the geographic issues, uh, and in the middle of the most difficult circumstances, they've created something so focused on the needs and the aspiration of their customer owners 
that their health system is now reflecting the health of their community. Yeah, they uh, took a statistics to prove it. Yeah, they took a population that was at the low 5% on HEDA scores across the board, and after 20 years, they're now at the top 25% on almost every category. It's, it's pretty impressive, and they can do it for half the cost. It's like, okay, there is something they have learned that needs to be more a part of what we do in this country. Now, you're, you're writing a book, and you shared your book with me, and I appreciated the chance to have to you know, read through that, but it's, it's very much about transforming healthcare through free market forces. I'd love your thoughts on, because of this focus on this book, tell me some of your thoughts as to how transforming a healthcare system that's very deficit-based to one that's more customer-focused and aspirational, how will that happen? And what does it take to make that transformation? And how do we apply market forces to do that? Okay, well, um, that, that's a complex and that's a big question. question. <laughs> a huge question. Uh, and of course, this has been part of the national conversation uh, ever since Hillary Clinton began, you know, describing what many people call Hillary care, uh, you know, in the time of her husband's presidency. Uh, and so we, we have to look at the big picture issues. Uh, and there are fundamental questions here as to whether government is the best provider uh, for major national issues uh, or whether government really should only provide a framework uh, in which people's personal aspirations and ideas and initiative uh, are given the opportunity to flower. Uh, and so that forces someone who thinks about these issues to start thinking about the economics of what's going on. Uh, and there really are uh, very widely divergent opinions. Uh, so it doesn't make one the only way of thinking. Uh, but I had the opportunity, you know, living and working in London, I had chosen to work in a very poor area. 92% uh, of the, the people in the area that uh, my wife and I lived and worked in uh, were in government uh, subsidized housing. Uh, so that gives you some idea. It wouldn't have in that sense, except it was inner city compared to the, uh, you know, what South Central Foundation are doing in Florida, in um, Alaska, where, you know, they're dispersed in an area the size of France. Um, you know, so that they're, they're a huge, geographic entity. We were a densely populated entity, but all uh, pretty much of the same type of issues that people faced. And into that, the question is, how do you inculcate personal responsibility into a fabric that was used to only receiving something through a governmental system? Uh, and uh, that is really where my own thinking on these areas began, because I saw what happened as people within that sociological framework began to get ideas of things they could do that would dig themselves out of what looked like a closed system so that they could take a broader part in society as a whole. And obviously what I'm talking about here is the initiative of what the free market can produce. Uh, and so I, I look at Britain where, yes, it's free in the sense that the government gives it to you, but if you want an MRI there, don't expect it tomorrow, probably not even next month. Uh, you'd only get that quality of care for something that 
you know, uh, the system has been forced into saying, yeah, the only way we can really diagnose is what's happening, and we're going to ration it basically by scarcity. Uh, and so scarcity means that you're going to wait three or four or five months, maybe, uh, for something that we would consider so basic it should be done this afternoon if it's needed. Uh, and when you begin to look at these competing priorities, for me, as I looked at what happens in the free market, I mean, if you look at LASIK surgery for your eyes or, uh, you know, all sorts of areas where uh, uh, the free market has been able to, to bring its incredible, you know, what Adam's guiding hand uh, uh -huh. to light, uh, the prices drop and the quality goes up. Uh, and to me, probably the greatest example that most people have a way of looking at right now is direct primary care or virtual primary care, where, you know, in, in establishing a clear, strong monetary relationship, but only a tiny bit, the cup of a, a Starbucks cup, cup of coffee every other day is yeah. enough to give you 24-7 access to a well-qualified physician who's going to look after you and take care of that 75% of stuff that really can and should be handled within the family practice environment. Which is what the NUCA system did. They basically said, if, if this is what the customers want, immediate access to care, help being healthy, support being responsible for my own health, they said, let's build a very massively powerful primary care system where only a few members are assigned to a team of providers. And that team's primary role isn't to simply prescribe a treatment when someone falls off the cliff, but to build trusting relationships and engage those people and inspire those people to live healthy and to take ownership of their health and be proactive in doing that. That's all they did was build a system around the person and, and, and rational, you know, ration their services in a way where they're inspiring health rather than just fixing problems. And it's amazing to how that, like you said, that direct primary care model or that where you've got a subscription model or where you've got assignment to few people not thousands of people, but the the doctor and that team of providers literally get to know each person in a very intimate way so that they can inspire and engage those people as in healthy behavior. It, it just makes all the sense in the world. Daryl, it ab absolutely does. And you and I both know sort of working in this sphere uh, that the vast majority of, let's call it medical care, uh, sadly, sort of mainly sickness care, uh, is directed towards chronic illness. Mm -hmm. uh, here in the United States, I think two out of three uh, adults over the age of 50 are on some sort of long-term chronic medication. Uh, and so, you know, as, as we look at these types of issues, we realize we can deal with this chronic stuff before people have fallen off the cliff. <laughs> we can work with them in such a way that they don't need the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. We can just put a little fence up and teach them better ways of living, and that will do so much to reduce healthcare costs. And it's not just teaching people, because people know, most people know what they should be doing, it's engaging them to take ownership to actually do it. And you can't do that with a, a occasional visit when you have a sprained ankle. It's creating relationships of trust where every contact with that patient is focused on helping that person change behavior and and the treatment plan is secondary it's it's like 
it isn't, you know, having a perfect treatment plan does do does nothing if the person doesn't follow the plan. <laughs> that is so true. And it's what I love about the NUCA system is that they've they really internalized into their system that the patient is absolutely central. It's the patient who decides whether they're going to follow the plan, not the doctor. Right. And so they build a system to support that they do it. <laughs> it's like it just makes so much sense. So now that you give me some ideas. Again, I love what you write in your book and the fact that market forces have to move us in this direction. It's not going to be the government that comes in and says, okay, this is just the way we're going to do healthcare. Because quite honestly, what the Native Alaskans did 20 years ago is they took over from the government a very sick based system and said, it can't be worse. We can do a better job of doing healthcare by just simply applying basic continuous quality improvement processes and build a system around the customer versus the system. So with your experience transforming healthcare and building sharing programs, give us what you foresee would need to happen in order for market forces to really move our healthcare system from being deficit-based to being aspirational. Well, at the moment, the general perception about the healthcare system and really the, the shaping of government policy, I think, would sort of underline this, to me, false belief. Uh, and that sort of core idea is that if people have insurance, then they have access to healthcare. And that's just not true. They might have access to healthcare. They might not. I mean, if you look at the, the, the Medicare population or the Medicaid population, let, let's take the Medicaid because theirs is entirely paid for by the government. Uh, you know, it's a well-known fact uh, that probably the worst in terms of population health uh, is experienced by those who have almost the most unlimited access to health care because it hasn't really engaged them. Mm -hmm. And because many of the healthcare professionals would perhaps prefer to opt out of a system that may or may not pay them enough that they can actually handle that patient well. So you, you look at these, I guess, competing priorities and you begin to say, how do we put the patient at the center of what's going on? And it's not just the patient, but it's the patient's engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things I found, you know, I had many years of family practice in England uh, in a socialized system, uh, and I saw how difficult it was to engage a patient who felt that everything had to be given to them as a right, and for whom there was no I don't want to be too broad in how I describe things, but for many of the patients, there was little sense of the personal responsibility that was tied up with the issues concerned. And the system itself militated, militated against me helping them understand those things, because if you only have six minutes with a patient, you're not going to do much teaching. You're just being rushed on the treadmill from one to another to another to another. And then, you know, maybe we used to do probably another 10 home care visits, which were extremely uh, time consuming and generally speaking, not very medically effective. 
but we didn't have the control of that. The patient had the control that they could demand that the doctor came to their home. Uh, now that's changed, thankfully, in England now. Uh, but you, you look at these things and you understand there's some really core primary issues. And as I looked at it, for me, it said people value what they pay for. We need skin in the game. My patients could always find five pounds, which was about eight dollars, for a video to take home that night from the, the British equivalent of Blockbuster in those days. But could they find five pounds as their copay for something that would help them in their health? Oh no, doctor, I, I, you know, I need you to sign the note that tells the government that I'm so poor I can't even do that. And, and with no skin in the game, people's motivation changes and the NUCA system has found a way to engage the patient as the core person, not the professional, the patient is at the center. Uh, and so everything revolves around helping that individual member, patient, consumer, whatever language you use, decide that their health actually needs to become their aspirational value. And that our role is in helping them accomplish that. Tony, there's not a lot, we, we're kind of coming to the end of our half hour, but I do want to address when it comes to free market, what role will the employers play since they're the ones that largely pay for healthcare for most Americans, other than what the government pays for? What role does the employer pay that play in this movement using market forces towards a more aspirational healthcare system? You know, potentially, uh, I see the employer, let's call him the owner or the CEO, you know, whatever the framework is, as being the greatest change agent. Because they're making decisions, unfortunately, they're mainly handing it over to an insurance broker who worked for the insurance system, but they have the potential of making a decision to say, no, I'm only going to have my healthcare dollars going in such a way that it really benefits my employees. They are the core of my area of responsibility. Uh, and there are some legal frameworks now uh, where they can put that money into the employee's hands in such a way that the employee can make choices based on their own enlightened self-interest. Uh, so for those listening who are more technical, things like ICRAS, the Individual Choice Health Reimbursement Arrangement, uh, but other tools as well, uh, allow a framework where the employer can semi-remove themselves from uh, the healthcare decision-making, even while still making the financial resources available and saying to his employees, why don't you choose what's best for you? And if you feel you need more than uh, what I'm providing financially, you're allowed to use your own resources in such a way that you, you can build this up to anything you choose for it to be. Uh, so the employer is critical. And I'm kind of on a mission to see CEOs <laughs> understanding that they can pioneer a movement that will change the American healthcare world. I agree with you, and I couldn't agree with you more that the individual coverage HRA does create a whole new market and a whole new market forces where now healthcare plans will be focusing more on what does the individual want? And the individual does want a healthcare system that's more focused on them and keeping them healthy. And I think we're gonna see over the next 10 years, a major movement towards 
health plans that really truly focus on the individual and are not just there when people fall off the cliff. And I think people will move to those and they'll use their employer's money to make those selections. We're already seeing some very innovative health plans at a fraction of the cost that individuals can choose from that are focused on them. And they're using these direct primary care models and, and sharing programs are another great example of how the healthcare system's transforming. And I think there's a lot of change that we see in the next 10 years that moving towards like the NUCA system is built, a more aspirational healthcare system built around me, the customer, instead of just me being the benefactor of your system, is going to play out. Darrell, I'm, and, and we're seeing this transformation, you know, in the, the medical cost-sharing approach that we've pioneered in Sidera, and we're, we're seeing companies all over the country uh, slashing their cost while dramatically improving the care for their employees. Great. Is there anything in conclusion that you haven't had a chance to share, Tony, that you'd like to share as a part of this or this webinar? You know, I think it would just be a challenge to people that change isn't someone else's responsibility. I think it was Tolstoy, the, the you know, uh, famous Russian author, uh, who, who said, you know, we, we all believe that change needs to happen. We can see where it needs to happen in other people. But actually, it always begins with us. Yeah. And if we become the change that we want to see happen, if each of us in our areas of responsibility will only spend healthcare dollars in a way that actually is uh, liberating the professionals to be able to see this free market uh, explode as it is doing across the country, we will bring grassroots transformation to healthcare in this country. I agree. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you so much.